Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and legacy of the great psychic and remote viewer Ingo Swan. My guest is Ellie Flippin, who is Ingo Swan's niece and has been his housemate and is currently one of the people responsible for administering the Ingo Swan estate. Ellie is on the East Coast and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Ellie. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it is so wonderful to be here with you too, Jeff. Thank you. You are in a very unique position with regard to your uncle, Ingo Swan. So many people have images of him as an author, as an artist, as, as someone who worked with the military, as, as the godfather of remote viewing, but you knew him as your uncle as, as, and as a housemate. So you have a, a, a real inside view as, as to what he was like as a human being. Yeah, certainly. Um, he was a Virgo. And he was born during the year of the rooster, if you follow Chinese sort of astrology. And I would say he lived up to both of those monikers, if you will, <laughs> without a doubt. Now, a Virgo would be a very fastidious person, as I recall. Yes, yes. Uh, everything, everything had a purpose and everything in, a, in its place. And I would say he probably learned some of that from his paternal grandmother. She was um, a Finnish Swede. She was an immigrant. And so nothing was to be wasted. Nothing went to um, the scrap pile. So something was always recycled in one way or another. And I would say that part of his Virgo nature certainly stuck with him. I mean, that he found a purpose for everything that came into 357 Bowery and he used it in one way or the other. And in terms of um, making sure everything was precise, even in his art, he had a he used a number of, I would say, mathematical devices. You know, things that you could draw in geometry to help him in his art. So yes, he was extremely precise in everything that he did. Let's talk about your childhood. When did you first become aware of Ingo as a person in your life? Well, probably when he left his Trans Am with the big Firebird um, splattered across its it, um, engine, painted on the engine, he left it in parked with us at our home in Cupertino. So he's always to us somebody larger than life figure. So we always kind of like flew in and this very fast, very um, what we consider kind of outrageous car. And that was his personality as well. So we were, you knew when he was around because his personality was, you know, huge, just like his whole persona, his aura, everything was huge about him. So there, there was no missing when he was in our house. You could tell when he was in our house. Now, I was thinking that you and Ingo were both New Yorkers, but you're talking about California at the time. How old were you then? 
when he was working at SRI, I was in middle school. So, so probably, well, I guess he would have been, you know, much earlier than that. When he started at SRI, it was 72, 73. I was very small then. Mm-hmm. But when he was getting into that, that place with SRI where he was training the other remote viewers, I was in middle school. And sometimes he would bring the his students over to have dinner with us. Well, okay, we would eat, they would drink a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always, because I was in middle school, I, we didn't know what he was doing. He never talked about what he was doing, the, the clandestine sort of top secret work he never shared with us. You know, we simply knew that they were psychics of some sort. So I was always super afraid that they were going to read my mind in some capacity. And I, I kind of laugh because I'm like, what is so super secret as a middle school person that these people would be even interested in knowing what I was thinking about, but it did always worry us. I know my sister and I worried us, so you know what, what he was do, but they were too busy drinking copious amounts of wine to really pay attention to us. And, and more often than not, a lot of our silverware got hauled out and they would try to bend the silverware too at these dinner parties. So, Yeah, I remember those years back in the 1970s. I was a college student in California myself at the time. And, and of course, Uri Geller was all the rage and uh, Ingo wasn't as well known then as he is now. Uh, Uri was the famous psychic, and, and people were bending spoons and having spoon-bending parties everywhere. So, and also, for benefit of our viewers, we should say that SRI uh, at that time was known as Stanford Research Institute, a big military-industrial think tank where Russell Targ and Hal Putoff had established a parapsychology laboratory. Um, in California. So Ingo was, was frequently uh, making trips to California, but I gather he was really essentially a New Yorker. Oh, yeah. He, he would say that New York was always his home. And in fact, when he was small, so when he was about three years old, he actually told his parents that he wanted, he didn't like his name. So he's, he was named Ingo Douglas Swan. And his father's name was just Ingo Swan. So to tell the difference between the two, the family took to calling him by his middle name, Douglas, and then they would abbreviate it to Dougie. And he just hated that so much. He never he he didn't feel like it was named. So at three, he actually told his parents he wanted the name that he had before. And he wanted to live where he had lived before. <laughs> so um, this was sort of a problem because they didn't really know what this was. I mean, this is Telluride. This is the, the mid mid 1930s. So of course they called the, their local Presbyterian priest in, you know, and basically Ingo based, told this priest what for, used some, some words that he knew his father had used when, when he got really angry. And at that point, he said he got hauled off to the coal shed with his dad's um, razor belt in hand to fix the problem. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, he knew from a very young age that he was supposed to be in New York. And he did do some um, work on past lives. And through that work, 
kind of ascertained that he was Rudolph Valentino in a previous life. Um, and he said when he had done that, he had met already several people who claimed to be Rudolph Valentino in a previous life. And he would go on to meet even more. But yeah, he always felt like New York was supposed to be home. And after he got out of the army, he immediately took a train. He was um, in Boston at the time at a station in Boston and took a train from Boston through the night, arrived in Manhattan and just said, here I am. I'm back where I'm supposed to be. I gather that you also eventually moved in with him into his apartment on uh, Bowery. Yes, yes. So when he when he um, first came to New York, he lived in a studio in the West Village. And then um, right right at the time where he was going out to work with um, Pudoff and, and um, Targ, he moved into the East Village at 357 Bowery. And so he had the top and bottom floors a lot of artists in between in in the floors in between i had just graduated from vassar college i was sort of looking about what to do next i really had centered in on manhattan is where i wanted to be um but of course manhattan was super expensive and i really couldn't figure out where i was going to be in new in new york on a, on the salary that i had it seemed impossible so uncle ingo said hey come and live with me come and stay with me which, you know, at that point was still a little daunting to me. Um, we, I knew him from when he came to visit us in California. He came to all of our graduations, our middle school graduations and our high school graduations and our college graduations. So, but he was still a mystery to me. But, you know, I, you know, I took it on faith and he was very welcoming. He's a very congenial person. Um, not just me, but for a number of people, even if they were down on their luck, friends, what have you, there are a number of people who he opened his home to who stayed with him. Um, he just really welcomed that kind of camaraderie in his home. So here I was with this man, late 50s, and here's me, uh, just graduated from college. You know, how are we going to make this work? And it was marvelous. He, um, I write about this in, in my book, uh, Stardust Highways, Ingo Swan's Art of Entertaining, about how he had a double coil hot plate and a toaster oven, and he made the most exquisite meals. So every day we would go to the grocery store, he would just gather various ingredients, we would walk back, and then he'd whip up these like extraordinary meals for us. And that was when I was working during the day, we would come, he would cook these things at night. And then on the weekends, he would paint or he would write. And I would help him in one either in one of those regards, either just by sleeping while he was painting, not to disrupt him, or by helping him um, with his research or organizing or reading. Oftentimes, he would print out on his dot matrix printer, right? I don't know if you remember those are like, <laughs> And as it would come out, then um, he would ask me to reread whatever he had written. So it's sort of a just a great entree into the world of Ingo Swan. And then all sorts of people came to visit. He was very, very gregarious. He's very um, alive at that point. So loved to entertain, loved to host. All sorts of people came by, writers, researchers, military people, forecasters, 
artists, actors, directors, shamans, people from IONS, people from um, the ASPR, just a whole spectrum of individuals came in to visit him. So you really became part of his whole world. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, at some point it was, I, I became sort of that, that person who, well, you'll have to answer the phone, you'll have to answer the door and discern if they get in or not, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, oftentimes, because he didn't tell anybody, he had a niece, you know, he, people didn't know what to make of me. Like, who was I? Who was this mm -hmm. person? But I would always call him Uncle Lingo. And because I did, anybody who came loved it and got to calling him Uncle Lingo, too. So it was fun to hear them do that, too. I gather from, in fact, the documentary that you very graciously allowed us to air on uh, this channel, the award-winning documentary, that there were famous people who uh, occasionally would visit him. Oh, all the time. I mean, even before he was the father of remote viewing, he was quite the entertainer. So even in the 60s, he would have what he called bottle parties, what really bring your own, bring your own thing. But he was known to serve this punch, which is really three alcohols. So <laughs> very intense alcohol. So we love to get people really drunk and have a great time. And of course, the East Village at that time was very bohemian, a lot of artists, writers, um, actors, always circling through his apartment at that time. So he's very used to having a lot of different people come. And he he even said that he had a hard time because both Tennessee Williams and um, um, Truman Capote both hit on him. So he had to kind of fend that off as well. He was able to live uh, the lifestyle that, that suited him at the time, which is probably very different from his upbringing in Telluride, Colorado. Oh, sure. So... He was, his parents um, were neighbors. So my, his paternal grandmother, the, the Swedish Finn, very upstanding woman in, in the community, where his maternal grandmother was like 11 of 13 kids and kind of dropped off somewhere in the way where they were going from one failed farm to the next. And she, she kind of fell off the wagon, so to speak, somewhere in Kansas, had to make her way. So very... um bootstrapping woman, if you will, um, very, very like entrepreneurial, we would probably call it today, just kind of having to make her own way in the world. And so she, she had um, her, her grandmother was a Cherokee Indian. And so she had kind of that frontier mixed with Native American kind of mythology to her being and sort of accepted those otherworldly things happening. So he, because both of his grandmother, they were neighbors, they both ran boarding houses, but his, his maternal grandmother, Anna, um, was much more accepting of sort of otherworldly happenings. So Ingo could discuss with her things that he found. So he could see lights around people, he could see um, lights around objects. He was known to have um, very vivid dreams where he saw things happening. He had impressions of future events. So he was very aware of at a very young age that there were other phenomena that he couldn't talk to other people, but he could talk to Anna about. So 
but also because he was the first grandchild of the, these two young individuals who were kind of um, his paternal grandmother, Maria, and his maternal grandmother, Anna, didn't really get along. And so for their children to were sort of kind of star-crossed lovers in that regard, sort of off limits. But they found a way to get together and they actually took off and drove to New Mexico and eloped. <laughs> so <laughs> when they came back, neither mother was anywhere near excited about what happened. But when Inga was born, all of that was forgiven. There's this beautiful young child who's just um, so full of life and energy and all these experiences and, and just adored by all his family members. So he actually was had a lot of love from his family at a very young age. And you've referred to spontaneous psychic events that were occurring in his life since childhood. I, I imagine during the years uh, that you live with him that spontaneous psychic things also occurred. Well, his building was, it was very interesting. Um, so it is, it, it was, it was built as a, um, in the Lower East Side at the time were a lot of immigrants, so German and Ukrainian immigrants, so sort of tenement housing, but it itself was for an insurance company. And then it went with some sort of factory before it ultimately became full of um, tenants themselves. But along with that, there were always happenings inside 357. So um, not always good, not always good things happening inside 357. And that's actually how we met the psychic Paula Robert. So um, on the third floor lived Charlie House, and Charlie House was an astrologer like Ingo. Um, unfortunately, he suffered a heart attack and passed away. He lived on the third floor, and it was Ingo who found him oh. and um, was sort of devastated by that because they were very close, but also finding somebody deceased. And after that, a, a French artist moved in and she started to paint these sort of ghastly paintings with these dark themes and dark skeleton-like figures. And and then she got cancer and she moved out. Um, and then a young couple moved in and they had atrocious fights. So Ingo felt like maybe there were some bad things going on in the third floor. And Paula Roberts uh, kind of was on Unsolved Mysteries and was known as a ghost hunter. So he brought her in to investigate what was happening on the third floor. And the result of that was like everybody, after she was done, he opened lots of bottles of wine. They both got exceedingly drunk. <laughs> Somehow salt was found. Salt ended up all over the third floor. I don't really even know if it made a dent to whatever was there. Because <laughs> it just got, poof, you know, sprayed everywhere. Um, but the but Paula stayed in our lives and Paula was a wonderful addition to the, the to us at three fifty seven Bowery. I guess the idea there was that, that psychic happenings are not out of the ordinary. It was part of the day to day life of the place. Oh, absolutely. Well, and just because of the, the types of individuals who also came to see Ingo as well. I mean, no, Ingo informally served as a mentor to a number of people who were either psychic detectives or ghost hunters or paranormal investigators. So even though that was never really talked about, he served as this mentor. So they were often at 357 too. 
Well, now let's also talk a bit about your work with uh, the Ingo Swan Estate. I know you've been very active. There have been publications. The archives have been donated to the University of West Georgia. I believe uh, the estate has also established some fellowships there. Yes. So Ingo left a set of instructions in his will, and mostly they were just about what should happen to his body after he passes away. And that was that he wanted to be cremated and he wanted his ashes secretly and quietly as so not to be arrested spread over in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so that was the extent of it. So my mom ultimately, um, found a company that you, you give them their ashes, they take it up in an airplane and then they disperse them at a safe level above the Grand Canyon. But that was sort of the extent. He did want his art to go to a new agey type institution. And he also hoped that somebody would be interested in his archives. So really, it, it, my main concern and the thing that he always talked to me about was his cosmic art files. And, and that was a book that he edited in the 70s um, where there were a number the, the authors interviewed over a hundred different cosmic artists and collected from these various artists, different files and mm. works and what have you. So that for me, that was the most important thing to find a home for. That was actually in, in reaching out to the university of Virginia, because I knew of their work with reincarnation. So their programs with, with reincarnation reached out to them. And although they were not interested, they made um, two recommendations. And for his art, that was the American Visionary Art Museum. And for his archives, they thought that the University of West Georgia would be interested in them. And, you know, at that time, they had a University of West Georgia had a small humanistic program, mm -hmm. of which para parapsychology being a part of that and um, hosting the archives of William or Bill Roll, who was the poltergeist investigator. And I knew that Ingo had done some work with Dr. Roll, so I felt like this might be a good place. And it was really just talking about the cosmic art files. And they said, um, hey, do you have these other things, correspondence and research? We would love to have that too. So um, we split up the, the art, went to the American Visionary Art Museum, certain pieces. Well, I would say maybe his masterpieces. Um, his partner in the building, his nephew bought everything else, his artwork and his furnishings and what have you. And he's an owner of the Highline Hotel in New York. And so today you can go to the Highline Hotel and you can sit on Ingo's sofas and you can put your coffee on Ingo's side tables and you can sit under Ingo's other art, which I think is fabulous. And then the University of West Georgia, which was really welcoming to all of Ingo's archives. And um, they're, they're valued and treasured there. And along with that, my mom wanted to make sure that the archives in general, because research was so important to Ingo. Um, he says in Remote Viewing the Real Story that remote viewing was not something he created. It was the work of hundreds of individuals a lot of researchers and history before him. And 
So my mom wanted to recognize that, that research is very important, that this is a valid experience, but wanted people to come down and use archives and do research. And so started the Ingo Swan Fellowship, which is every other year for somebody who's doing specific research to come and use the archives, specifically the parapsychology archives or the humanistic archives in unique and a creative way. And, and that just led to more people, once, you know, Ingo anchored, Ingo's archives were anchored there, more people that University of West Georgia was able to approach more and more individuals on, you know, the whole spectrum. And so I think what you find down there is a richer, more broad, a broader collection, not just Ingo's archives, but very interesting work as well. I think it's been a real stimulation to the university as as a whole, and I know it has attracted uh, a number of people who spent a lot of time there, and uh, I'm sure over the years there will be doctoral dissertations uh, based on the material in the archives. Now, one of the things about Ingo's life that isn't talked about much, and I don't know if you know much about it yourself, Ellie, uh, but it's been, I think, common knowledge that he had gone through Scientology and actually achieved a rather high level in the Scientology organization, and that that may somehow be related to his success as a remote viewer. Is there anything you can say about that? I know that for him, when L. Ron Hubbard was in charge of Scientology, it was one of many things that he turned to. So you have to understand that starting in the early 1960s, he was starting to read the um, Blavatsky and the Alice Bailey's and, but he was also the fourth way and anything that dealt with sort of occult or arcane or hidden knowledge was very attractive to him. And in some respects, um, Scientology is not dissimilar from that. It was something that was pushing the boundaries of human consciousness, sort of um, hidden knowledge. So sort of that experiential information. So Ingo's just loved to absorb all kinds of information. So it was very attractive to him to kind of figure out, okay, I've learned everything I can learn. I've learned alchemy and I've learned astrology and I've learned all the occult mysteries. And you see this sort of ancient, Sanskrit text that he was investigating, just like he was investigating ancient Chinese um, and ancient Tibetan mysteries and mythologies. And so he's like, okay, very attracted to this. And certainly he he rose to the ranks. I mean, um, you can see the correspondences between him and L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, clearly, I think he's like on L. Ron Hubbard's speed dial, right? Mm. <laughs> Basically, the closeness. Um, sharing Christmas cards, talking. So he, he's very appreciative of what he's learning inside Scientology. And I think that it did give him some guidance and structure to how to conceptualize the protocols of remote viewing. But the whole idea of this kind of remote viewing itself stretch, stretches back to time immortal, where people have often experience some sort of, I mean, clearly you go back to the earliest texts of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and when I, 
people are, are being guided by what the stars say or what, what the oracles say or what have you. So everybody's sort of interested in knowing something that can't be attained by other ways. And that just kind of filters through history to where you get to the whole spiritualist movement, right? And clairvoyance and table wrapping, what have you. And, um, and people starting to do work on thought transference. So of course, in Ingo's readings of all of this, he's picking up that as well. He's very attuned to what's going on in sort of the spiritualist and the early parapsychology movements, which are which is founded because people are trying to figure out what's going on with the spiritualist. Is it fraudulent? Is it some sort of fakery? Is there something behind it? Um, so there, there are, you know, even into the early, early 1800s, mid 1900s, a lot of work being kind of in, in to investigate this phenomenon of you will like clairvoyance and thought transference. So of course he's read about those as well. So the, the aspect of being able to see something in a time or place distant from yourself has a long history. Hmm. So for your, your question of like Scientology maybe helped give him a way to ascertain that, um, in a in a packaged format so he could figure out well what are the steps that one could go through or you could still remain conscious and in your body and how can i elicit this information that way would you say that he uh, left scientology at some point i don't know if he ever really left scientology as a methodology I would say he certainly left the Church of Scientology. That is that is true. You know, I think his connection was through L. Ron Hubbard. Mm -hmm. um, when that became very tenuous, he starts going into um, the Avatar movement. Um, he he always had an he had an e meter in his his um, at three fifty seven. There are things in the archives where you see him having done. Um, where he was doing sort of remote viewing of the moon and other things and picking up hitchhikers. Mm -hmm. And he's using an e-meter to kind of address these other entities. So he, so those modalities, I think, stayed with him through his life. Was he a, a, a resident inside the church? No. But was he using some of the techniques? Yeah. One of the great mysteries about Ingo that I, I wonder if you can shed any light on at all is his book Penetration, in which he talks about working with some sort of a secret organization, being flown with some very strange people to a, a location somewhere in the far north of, uh, I don't know, Alaska or Canada, somewhere, and uh, encountering a UFO that they apparently brought him there for the purpose of encountering it. And, and I guess it was also rather hazardous at, at the time. Uh, people read that book, I've read it, and, and discussed it with other people. And on the one hand, the account seems hard to believe. And on the other hand, uh, Ingo himself seems like a totally sincere person and, and hard to disbelieve. So I, I wonder if, if he ever discussed any of that with you. Yeah, it's actually the it's the question I get the most uh, because because of the nature. So probably the mid 1990s, he did tell me the story about the UFO. 
You never told me the story about the moon, but you certainly told me about the UFO. And the story he told me or how he related to me is, is exactly as how he wrote it in the book. Right. Um, I know that he did a number of subsequent sessions on the moon and other planets. He did those with somebody he trained by the name of Bob Durant. Bob Durant was um, sort of big in the, the UFO community. Bob Durant came with Jim Schnabel and Jim Schnabel was doing his research on his book about remote viewers and Ingo trained Jim and Bob Durant at the same time. And Bob Durant remained a really close friend of Ingo's and they would continue to remote view various places in the universe and I would transcribe those so I knew what they were they were doing um but in terms of this arctic circle adventure yeah he just told me the story about that um I don't know who Axelrod is I think that in his remote viewing the real story he's put a lot of clues as to who that is um and I know that because there are lots of clues to other things but you know, nothing is as it seems. So you have to be very ingenious to unpackage it or, or figure it out. And I think Ingle loved to do that. He loved to see if people could figure out the meanings of things. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know who it is, but I believe he's telling us who it is. I just don't know who it is. <laughs> you seem to be suggesting that sometimes he would uh, say things symbolically that uh, you wouldn't always want to interpret everything he said uh, literally. Would that be fair? So, and I think as I as I read more of his things, I understand his paintings more. I some of the paintings are very confusing to me with the symbols and and um, the imagery doesn't quite make sense. But if we if I read certain things that he's written at that time frame, they're kind of coalescing like, okay, he's painting and writing about the same kinds of things. So yes, I think he put a lot of symbolism. You know, I think he was a student of Hieronymus Bosch in that regard, that kind of um, occult mythology symbolism into his artwork. And I, I, I think everything has a purpose. And so I think anything he's talking about in the real story, there's something more to it. I don't know that we can take it all at face value. I think he was, he, and I'll give you this as an example. And I, and I talked about this in my earlier presentation. It, um, a very close companion, his second fiance, Pauline Winslow, an artist, um, an author, I believe they wrote the book Death of an Angel together. It was written in 1975. It is about the death of an, an um, gay artist with this wonderful studio on the Bowery. His name is Smokey Angel. That's why it's Death of an Angel. And he's involved in secret spying for the government. And I think they put a lot of clues in there too. I think it's sort of like those the Truman Capote stories are studied where it's a it's about people in their lives. And I think that's what the real story is. And I think that's what penetration is. I'm, you know, is are there naked people running around the moon? I don't know. Is it hidden? Is he putting information in there because he can't disclose it? So he's using 
using things that we could relate to for something else. I mean, this is the late 1990s disclosure is not really happening. So maybe he's trying to tell us things in an indirect way. Well, you've also been actively involved in uh, getting some of his unpublished literary work into print. And, and I know a number of books have now been published uh, as a result, in, including Purple Fables, which uh, is sort of allegorical in, in some sense. And you wrote a book. Yeah, so there were a number of of books. I mean, in, I mean that the, his whole office was filled with paper and books. So there were a number of things that he wrote, just like his art. A number of things that he started and didn't finish. Um, but there were a few things that had been finished that we sort of felt like. He couldn't find a publisher during his lifetime, but now you can self-publish whatever you want, right? Um, that sort of warranted, maybe we should get this out into the world. And that first, the one that he always kept closest to him was psychic literacy. And he wrote that in the late 80s, early 90s. Colin Wilson even wrote an introduction to that. It was really, an, it was ready to go. Um, he just didn't want to have it published. He couldn't have it published. I don't really know. All I know is it was ready to be published when we felt it needed to be. Um, and of course, Resurrecting the Mysterious. So that was two different manuscripts, one sort of the micro view and one the macro view that Nick Cook, journalist and, and author himself, edited together, really telling the, telling the story of um, for your journey as a neophyte to on the path to spiritual enlightenment, right? If you don't get this right, you're you're just gonna be keep reincarnating into this bad chain over and over and over again. And and how you progress through that sort of layers to reach sort of an embodiment of enlightenment. So um and then the ones you were talking about that were dictated to him, you know, purple fables in the mid nineties, and then it's sort of um cousin master of harmlessness, which I thought was just an early draft of Purple Fables, honestly. And then when I read it, I realized, oh, it's probably the same he said dictated to him, that same concept of good and evil and how you can journey through letting go of the bad and embodying the good and trying not to do harm in this lifetime. And it's just a wonderful story. And then he had always his story about reincarnation, the Windy Song, which he tried to get published in the 70s, couldn't find a publisher, and then preserving the psychic child, which is sort of like, hey, as children, we all, we have these things. And as parents, maybe we we can see that it is not imaginary what's happening and how to guide a child who might be experiencing, as he himself, right? He didn't have parents who knew what to do with all of him, right? everything that was happening to him. Um, and then my my book, which this is really a celebration of Ingo's love of entertaining and cooking and his artwork, which is Stardust Highways. Well, when you take uh, Ingo's life as a whole and consider the uh, output in terms of uh, the visual arts, in terms of his literary output, in terms of his productivity in, in the parapsychology laboratory, 
not to mention his culinary skills. It, it is a very, very rich and full life. Uh, I think another important story that you can share is how he served as something of a matchmaker uh, between you and your husband. Yes. So I was recent graduate of Vassar and Ingo's literary agent at the time, Sandra Martin's um, son was a few years older than I, and they decided through I think Ingo even doing an, an astrological comparison, but sort of psyching this out, felt like we would be an exquisite match for each other. Um, so Ingo brought me up to her apartment, was way up on the Upper West Side. And at the time, my husband, John, was a musician. So he had long hair and a goatee. And here I was this little Vassar person. <laughs> and we took one look at each other and we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> this, like you thought this person would be like I mean we both did it like like looking I'm looking at Anglingo and he's looking at his mom like what 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 is this so they sent us out to the bodega to get something you know hoping this would like spark something and basically we just figured out how we were going to come back and let them down that you know we appreciated the effort good job but you know it's not going to work out but, you know, Uncle Ingo was tenacious and um, Sandra was equally as tenacious and they didn't give up and they they bided their time. And it was at her 50th um, birthday party. So maybe five years later. And they just sort of were it was a big party and the two of them worked to sort of like corral us together. And we got together and I like to say it was love at second sight. We just <laughs> felt madly and deeply in love with each other that was the first weekend in november of 1996 the first weekend in december we had our first date and the first weekend in january we were engaged so once you got over the hurdle uh things moved very quickly yeah, so I guess Unglingo really could see it was meant to be, he just didn't get his timing right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and can we talk about his artwork a little bit? Sure. So it's, it's very fascinating, his journey within his artwork. So when he first comes to New York, he comes and he says he's come to join the ranks of tens of thousands of other struggling artists in Manhattan. And at the time, things are very surreal. So his paintings are probably one step up from hand drawing. They're very black and white. They're steam pipes and roads and buildings, um, very unimaginative, but I think he's just probably getting his feet wet. He starts to integrate a little bit of surrealism following Dolly in into his art so some the use of his the eyes in unique kind of imagery or big figures small figures um but then he just gives up he just can't make inroads into selling any of his paintings he just throws up his hands and says i'm just going to paint what i want to paint and he decides to paint very colorful paintings very abstract paintings um starting with flowers but mostly the lights that he sees around things. So the, his inspiration is sort of the auras or these energy fields 
that he's he's seen his whole life, he decides to paint these. And that series then leads him into um, what I would say when he starts getting into all of his occult studies, his artwork sort of takes on that same kind of theme. So there are lots of symbolism of occult meanings in his painting. So it's sort of this, what, what I would say is like this neutral, this kind of collapsing of the feminine and the masculine together. So we start to see figures of one half is good and one half is evil, one half is male, one half is female. So a lot of um, that duality of energy start to happen and then sort of like more, more occult type of symbolism into the late 60s. And then when he starts to, to do all of his work at ASPR is out of body work at ASPR. And he's going into the into the realm of space sometimes. And then of course, all his work at SRI and he's going to doing remote viewing of other planets. He starts to paint these these spacescapes, these exquisite journeys where he says, you know, space is not black or white. It's gorgeous. It's filled with color and exuberance. And he paints those wonderful space spacescapes. Um, and then he says that he's got a triptych, um, which he calls aft ships, aft ships view of Sagittarius. So if one were in a spaceship looking out at the constellation Sagittarius, he names the stars. He's got a, a painting, his highway series, which is the roads we travel on earth and then the roads we travel in space with our minds. So there's a highway going through space and a highway on the ground. And then um, what he calls the cosmic egg. So the birth of the cosmos from an egg inside an egg. And he reaches out as the Smithsonian is um, now building their air and space museum. Um, and Ingo says, what a better place to dump my things than in this museum. <laughs> so that, that's how they came by three of Ingo's um, spacecape paintings. And, and that's what he does through the 70s. And then the 80s and into the 90s, it's really metaphysical symbolism. And then, you know, some, a lot of UFOs, a lot of otherworldly vestiges, what have you. Let's see. Is there anything else we haven't covered, Ellie? For him, remote, you know, he's most identified, right, with remote viewing. Yes. Um, because for in his work what was so important was he could establish the methodology, right? And I think that's your question, Scientology. Scientology helped gave him a, a way to conceptualize the method, how you could teach remote viewing or the stages of remote viewing, right? Where you are still conscious and information is coming back to you in stages. So how to, how to do that and then how to teach that. But to him, remote viewing was just one of a constellation of interests and activities. And when you kind of look at the whole like playbook of Ingo Swan, it's much broader than just remote viewing, right? So he believes that we all have these wonderful innate abilities. You know, not everybody, you know, we can all throw a ball. Not everybody's going to be a major league pitcher, right? 
but we have the ability to throw a ball to a certain extent. And we just need to remember these marvelous attributes that we have. And I think that's his greatest contribution to humanity is saying, let's wake up and remember these things because they're there inside of us. What, you know, whatever I mean that is. And instead of getting into this drama or soap opera about remote viewing, like somebody there's so much to me, so much kind of infighting in the remote viewing world where it's remote viewing is just one of so many extraordinary things that we have and how can we help each other to develop these things. And I think that's what Ingo was about. He's about eliciting ways that we can attune ourselves to the greater natures that we have. I think that's very clear from his artwork and his writing that he was uh, undoubtedly a proponent for people being able to see themselves in a larger way. Uh, and yet, you know, from time to time, I hear from people, not a lot, but occasionally I hear from people and they know about this connection between remote viewing and the military. And so many people, because you know, for various reasons, they're hostile to the military or they're hostile to the government. It seems like it's a nefarious business, that there, there's something evil going on, that psychics would be working with the military. And I, I wonder if uh, any of that sort of flack came your way from, from people or, or Ingo's way. I think for... It, it, looking at the time, right? The time is, it's the height of the Cold War, right? Um, very, very, very afraid of some sort of nuclear kind of catastrophe happening between the Soviets and the United States. So you have to understand that sort of circling around. Um, you also recognize that there aren't really outlets other than parapsychology, which Ingo has kind of thrown up his hands at parapsychologists because what happened at the ASPR is his results were nearly perfect. And they said, it's not possible, simply not possible that somebody could be that good. So they wouldn't even believe his results. So he couldn't really go to parapsychologists because you know, they're afraid that it's going to be seen as fake, right? Because that's always been behind, you know, in the back of everybody's mind is, you know, are these people all fakes? You know, and a lot of them were. And I, there's some truth to that, right? So you have to get over, okay, parapsychology is not really believing me. Um, but the military, because they're so worried about the Soviets, and this is before we really have satellites that can drill in and see what's going on, right? We need to know what's going on over across on the other side of the world, but we don't have a means to see what's going on inside these facilities other than people, you know, somebody on the ground and asset on the ground. So the military is looking and saying, well, this could be beneficial. And Ingo's always said he was a patriot, right? So he's, this is important work to him because you know this this is dire threat around um and the only ones who are really investigating this because parapsychologists are you know a little little um cautious so i think he's finding in the military sponsors who are willing to investigate this for reasons that could be beneficial to our national security so we i guess you kind of have to 
kind of look at the historical mindset of this, that they're doing this for a greater purpose, right? And a lot of the sessions, he's he's having to remote view biological chemical experiment experimenting facilities where they are experimenting on humans. So he's having to remote view these and that I think took a tremendous toll on him. So he's, when he's remote viewing, it's not like a TV screen where we think, okay, you know, it's like watching a movie. He is there, he is smelling, he is feeling, he is perceiving what is happening. And you're looking at people being tortured. That's a tremendous and overwhelming experience. But the government's just trying to figure out, okay, well, we know there's this facility at this military base somewhere in Russia. He's telling them what's going on, right? We need to know, are we going to be in danger and what's the next danger that's going to come to us? So, um, yeah, from that perspective, he's one, a patriot, and two, it's somebody who's going to actually support his work and want to see it developed and appreciate the results. Let's put it that way. Did did he ever complain to you about the difficulty of doing that work? Well, I didn't even know that he did, right? So he mm. took his top secret clearance very seriously. So everybody asked us about remote viewing, even when my mom was alive. We really had no clue. We just knew he was a psychic doing this kind of psychic work. Yeah. And and ultimately, you know, he didn't really discuss remote viewing with me. Our time together was, you know, he told me stories about his wild sexual adventures in 1906, the Lower East Side, the gutters of Lower East Side and the, the dark back rooms and, you know, how he wrote porn for the mafia, you know, all the other fun stories about living this wild life in the Lower East Side in the village of Manhattan. Well, Ingo died 10 years ago in uh, 2013, so it's been a decade uh, since his passing. Uh, he was born in 1933, so I guess he died at the age of 80. Almost. So he was born, he was born in September of 1933, and he passed away on January 31st of 2013. So he had a pretty long and, and rich life. Yeah, and I think he would say the same to anybody. He he would say, get out and experience life. And I found in his writing something he called love come to my assistance, which is in something called the pursuit of happiness, which is simply let go of the dark and embrace the light and go experience these things and figure out things for yourself. Well, Ellie Flippin, what a pleasure to have this opportunity to reminisce with you about uh, a person who I imagine will be thought about and talked about for probably for centuries, as a matter of fact, a person of monumental accomplishments. Thank you so much for making yourself available and sharing these stories. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure and I'm so grateful for this platform and to be able to share them with you.
I also uh, want to remind our viewers uh, to take a look at the uh, short documentary that uh, you helped us uh, to graciously show on New Thinking Aloud. And the reason that you made that documentary is, is as a, a preview for a longer more lengthier documentary you're still hoping to make about Ingo's life. So uh, if any of our viewers uh, think they can contribute in some way to such a project, uh, now they know about it. Oh, that, is, that would be wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure, Ellie. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us because you are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? On June 1st, we just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.